For the next weeks up until Christmas, the preaching responsibilities here at Elam are going to be shared by Justina Hamill, uh, Bobby, our guests, and myself, along with possibly one or two others along the way. And between now and the beginning of Advent, we're going to be looking at relationships, as you would possibly see from this, this screen up there. Uh, our aim is going to be consider, to consider how we get along with other people. We need relationships, absolutely need them. As we hear in Genesis, and we know from our own experience, it's not good for man to be alone. We need people. Even God doesn't exist in a relational vacuum. The God we worship is a relational being. He exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in an eternal unbreakable relationship. Now, each one of us must daily navigate our way through many different sorts of relationships with a spouse, with children, with extended family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, and people with whom we share some kind of a special interest, maybe uh, an old-timers hockey club or uh, a sports team, a community group, or a church. However, as Christians, there should be something different about how we navigate our way through relationships. Our relationships need to be shaped and defined by our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be exploring for the next two and a half months. Now, the approach we take to these sermons will be slightly different. Justine is going to take us through, for three weeks, uh, the book of James, looking at relationships in the book of James. Uh, Bobby hasn't told us yet where he's going to go, but uh, he'll find out soon enough and, and, and let us know. And I'll be following the readings from the lectionary, taking things out of the readings from, from God's Word for each particular Sunday. But we have this in common, all three of us. We are each looking to the Bible to be our guide in learning about relationships. Now, there are two truths that will keep showing up in the weeks ahead. The first is this, the way we relate to and with each other as people matters greatly to God. This is true in every one of our relationships. The attitudes that shape the way we see people, the way we treat them, are under God's scrutiny. This is inescapable throughout the Bible, but especially in Jesus' teaching. Some of his teachings are especially challenging, and if we hear them correctly, should stop us dead in our tracks. The second truth is that God wants our relationship with him to shape and form the way we treat other people. As we've experienced love and grace and mercy in our relationship with the triune God, so we must treat those people and relate to those people with whom God has placed us in relationship. Now, my aim this morning is to look at the gospel reading and the epistle reading for today for in these two readings, we're going to see these two points illustrated and outlined. Now, our approach this morning involves two questions. What should I do when someone wrongs me? And how can I avoid quarrels? Those are two very practical questions that we can ask as we proceed through this discussion, the topic, this topic of relationships. Let's begin with the gospel reading. It's in Matthew 18. This parable was a response to a question that was put forward by Peter to Jesus. 
And it's a question that many of us might identify with from our own experience. Peter said, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? So let's listen to the parable. You can turn to it in your Bible, to uh, the Red Bible in front of you, to page 749. It's Matthew 18, and we'll begin with verse 21. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, replied Jesus, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned, owed, owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, and I will pay it, he pleaded, but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brother and sister from from your heart. Now this parable is a story shaped around four contrasts. We see a contrast between two debts, two debtors, I'm sorry, and then two debts, two requests, and two different responses. Now, the first debtor had apparently borrowed money as if he were a modern government. He owed the king an enormous debt, millions of dollars, we read in our translation. In Jesus' words, he owed 10,000 talents. Those are are silver coins, 10,000 talents. Now he was being told that it was time to pay back that debt. Now, he must have been a man of considerable standing and power in order to have been entrusted with such a large debt. But Jesus doesn't identify him as an important person or as a court figure or as a governor. He simply identifies him as a servant of the king. And the king orders that the man, his family, and all he owns be sold with the proceeds of the sale going to pay off the debt. The second debtor is also a servant of the king. His debt is quite small by comparison, a few thousand dollars. Jesus said his debt was a hundred denarii. Now, both men were servants of the king. Both have debts, and both are told that the time for repayment has come. But the contrast between the two debts is much more dramatic. I've been hearing a radio commercial that suggested instead of describing things as what they cost in terms of dollars, we describe them in terms of how long you have to work in order to get that sort of thing, whether it be a car or something else. 
But we're going to use that approach this morning. 10,000 talents. In Jesus' day, it would take an average working man 15 years to earn one talent. 15 years to earn one talent. Now, 100 denarii, that's the other debt. Denarius was basically a silver coin equivalent to an average man's daily salary. So we're going to work from that to try to figure out what this de- these debts would be in, in our Canadian coinage. Uh, what's the average wage today in Manitoba? Well, I, I don't know what it is today, but a year ago, according to Stats Canada, the average Manitoban earned $46,363 in a year. That would work out to about $178 a day as the average wage of a Manitoban. So that would mean a denarius would be worth $178. So in our context, if you owed 100 denarii, the debt would be $17,800 Canadian. If we convert this to talents, however, the debt was 10,000 talents, and then the second debt would be an astounding $6,954,500,000. That's a big debt. Almost $7 billion. This is almost silly, isn't it? But Jesus is making a point. Let's, let's grab his point. The second debt is roughly the equivalent of the national debt of Honduras. A country's debt. One debt is just huge. The other small. One debt is what maybe some of you might owe on a car that's two or three years old already. The other is the debt of Honduras. The contrast between the two debtors is not that, that great. They're, they're both servants of the king. Uh, the roles may have been different, but their status was the same. The contrast between the debts is enormous. Now, let's listen to the requests that are made with respect to the demands for repayment. The man with the huge debt says, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. The man with the smaller debt said, be patient with me and I will pay it. The requests are essentially the same. So in our first contrast, similarity, second contrast, huge difference, third contrast, they're almost the same. Now we get to the fourth one the responses, the actions of the people who were owed money. The king, surprisingly, forgave the entire debt. That sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Unless you're an auditor or an accountant or a bookkeeper, where does that debt go? Based on the man's balance sheet. It is now on his balance sheet a negative seven billion dollars. It doesn't disappear. Debts don't just disappear. Something has to happen to them. The king absorbs the debt as his own loss and says, you're free to go. Now, that man, though forgiven a huge debt, turns around, grabs the man who owes him a small amount, nothing in comparison to what he had owed the king, grabs him by the throat demands repayment, and then throws him in the debtor prison to rot there until somehow the debt gets repaid. 
That's a shocking behavior, despicable behavior. But we're not finished with this man yet. The king has told about the incident, and, and the first servant with the huge debt is called to account a second time. And what do we hear the king say this time? You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Maybe we smile as we we read this. Inside we think, yes, justice has been done. But we can't stop there. It's not the end of the story. We haven't yet heard the last word, which is Jesus saying to us, that's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. God has has forgiven us a debt that we could never even attempt to repay or dream of repaying. He's forgiven it completely. It didn't just disappear. He took it on himself when Jesus died on the cross for us. The debt of my sin towards God is every bit as great as that person's debt greater than that person's debt of of sin towards me. And yet God has forgiven me. How could I not forgive him? We dare not refuse to forgive a brother or sister who sins against us. But we are a bit like Peter, aren't we? I am. How many times, Lord? Seven? Isn't that enough? What's the answer? What's Jesus' answer to that question? Isn't seven enough? Somebody said 77. Is that really the right answer? Seven times seven? No. You just keep going, forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. Isn't that what Jesus does with us? Isn't that what God does with us? As God relates to us, so we should relate to others. Because we're forgiven, we forgive. This is the first truth that we're looking at this morning. God pays attention to how we treat other people. And Jesus says, if you don't forgive people, look out. That's what my Heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. What we do matters to God. Now let's turn briefly to Romans 14, page 867 in your Bible if you'd like to look at it. The epistle reading for the day, chapter 14, and it's the first 12 verses. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, One person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servant? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall, and with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. 
You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor Him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. If we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord of both the living and the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for the scriptures say, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will confess and give praise to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and to fall. In the church in Rome, as there are in probably any church in Winnipeg today, there are different groups of people with different opinions and convictions about different things. Paul singles out two issues. The first was an issue related to what a person should or should not eat. Some were vegetarians, others were not. Yeah, I'm with, I'm with the guy on the left, I think. Though my doctor would say, shame on you, maybe. Uh, the other issue revolved around the observance of certain days, holy days, as opposed to somehow treating every day alike, as if every day was a holy day. Now, there is in Paul's letter a contrast between two groups of people. One he calls the strong people. The other he calls the weak He says, one group is strong in faith. Their faith is strong enough that they can eat anything and worship any day. The other is is weak in faith. Uh, In terms of the two issues, those weak in faith only eat vegetables, the strong eat anything. The weak observe a host of religious days, the strong treat every day alike as honoring the Lord. Now, don't make the mistake, please, of thinking that Paul is taking sides. Unfortunately, when we hear the word strong, we think, okay, Paul's on their side. We hear the word weak, we think, yeah, Paul's looking down on them a little bit. He's not. He does not take sides. I, I, I took this from the cover of a book by Andy Crouch. And, and I took it because you've got an elephant and a bird. Which is strong? Oh, come on, the elephant. Which is weak? Bird, thank you. Is one better than the other? No. Would you choose to own one over the other? Yes. (laughs) Don't have room in your backyard for an elephant, probably. But one isn't better than... Paul is not taking sides. The, the, The strong are not better than the weak. He's only concerned with the way the two treat each other. The strong were inclined towards treating the weak with contempt, looking down on them for their belief. Those that Paul called weak were inclined towards being judgmental of the strong, who did not adhere to the kinds of standards of behavior that they thought they should adhere to. It's clear from the beginning that Paul did not want the two groups to be quarrelsome or divisive, and that's Paul's primary concern. 
Don't come together to quarrel and argue, he says. Now, Paul's not at all concerned with these issues. His own preferences don't show up at all. We don't know if Paul's a vegetarian or if he ate everything. His concern is with the relationships within the congregation. Issues don't matter. Not in this case. There are some issues that matter, but these kinds of issues don't. Now, those who will eat anything look down on the vegetarian group. One author says they they look at them with a smile of disdainful contempt. Those who eat only vegetables are judging those who eat meat as if it were an indication that they're somehow less Christian because of what they do. Paul says don't argue about it. And the path to that is to lay aside both the contempt and the judgment. And he gives us three reasons that we're going to go through quickly. Reason number one, God has accepted each of us into his family, the strong, the weak, the vegetarians, the non-vegetarians, the ones that worship on Sundays, the ones that worship on Saturdays. They're all part of the family. Paul says, those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Second reason, not our job to judge and condemn. God alone is the judge. Paul says, remember, who are you to condemn? Have I got that? Yeah, who are you to condemn someone else's servant? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. Remember that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Thirdly, our aim in all we do should be to honor and serve God. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to him. Both groups are seeking to honor and serve the Lord. Now, is Paul giving them more credit than they deserve? You think so? I do. Uh, None of us are that good. But he's showing us what we should be like. This is how we should live. We should do everything or refrain from doing things to honor and serve the Lord. And when we're all doing that, if we're doing things differently, we still look at each other and say, I know you're doing that to honor the Lord, and I'm doing this to honor the Lord, and we're united in the fact that we want to honor and serve the Lord. What kind of church does Elam want to be? Remember, Romans shows us that our, our relationship with each other should be shaped by our relationship with God. And the way we see and treat people is the way God has treated us. And what we see here is that God has accepted us, and therefore we accept each other. That's the kind of church we want to be, a church that honors and glorifies God as we accept one another fully as God has accepted us. Accepting and forgiving. Accepting the newcomer, accepting the insider who's been here for 40 years. And by God's grace and help, this is possible. Now that we should live this way, forgiving and accepting people, should be our prayer. And indeed, that's what we're going to do next in this service. We're going to pray together that we would be able to do this. And we're going to pray by singing a, a hymn together. Uh, 
The name of this hymn is I Then Shall Live, and, and it's an interesting hymn in that it's written by Gloria Gaither, who's written the words, and the tune was written by Sibelius, which seems like kind of an unworkable combination of characters. Um, and, and Ken's nodding his assent. Yes, sounds quite unworkable. But it's a beautiful hymn. And, and I want you to pay attention to the first verse. We're going to sing three verses together as a prayer. This is going to be our prayer in response to what we've seen in God's word. I then shall live as one who's been forgiven. I'll walk with joy to know my debts are paid. I know my name is clear before my father. I am his child and I am not afraid. So greatly pardoned, I'll forgive my brother. The law of love I gladly will obey. So let's stand together and sing these three verses as a prayer that we're praying this to God that he would enable us to forgive and accept one another as he has forgiven and accepted us.